Good morning, good morning, everybody. Welcome to H2O Church family. So good to see you all this morning. Oh, man, my, 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 what a blessing it is uh, to be able to be before you all today. Uh, my name is Alfonso Mack. If you have not met me yet, uh, I'm a pastor in training here on staff uh, at H2O. And uh, I have the privilege today of being able to close up our Romans 8 series with you. And man, let me tell you, this has been one of my favorite series so far um, that we've done in all of my time here. And it's really just because of the extravagant beauty of the gospel that we've gotten to see throughout Romans 8. We've gotten to see God's deep love for all of humanity in this chapter. But before we kind of dive into the text, let us pray together and then we'll get us started. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious God, thank you so much for this word. God, I just pray that your spirit would be here today, that you would just reveal to your, uh, others, reveal yourself to others, that people would draw near to you after they read your word. I pray that the gospel will be clear and that we would just fall at your feet in worship. I ask that for anyone in here that is struggling, that this text would be an encouragement to them. Lord, I just pray that as I'm up here that you would just speak through me and use me for your glory and your glory alone. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so this text of scripture that we'll be diving into today presses upon the heart of the believer, those who are weary and have been heavy hearted for a really, really long time. It speaks to those who may have confessed Christ but feel like they might have lost some hope. Maybe you walk in here, you might feel depressed. Maybe you might be plagued by anxiety and fear, sadness, loneliness. Maybe you're fatigued. Maybe you feel like your sin is too much. Maybe you just feel distressed and feel like God's abandoned you. Maybe you might be looking for some security and some hope to get you by in your day-to-day because life is just so heavy. Well, let me tell you something. This word that we'll be in today has such an encouragement for all of our souls. This passage speaks to how blessed we are as believers and followers of Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's actually almost a little bit too good to be true. Romans 8 is telling us that God has accomplished so much more than we could have even, even imagined. So much more than what we could have even have done for ourselves. What he has achieved for us, we couldn't have done it. And this passage points that out. It captures for us something that the scriptures as a whole in Romans 8 has been telling us, and it is this, and it is that God is extremely generous. God is extremely generous. And although that that is actually true for us, we should wrestle with this text today. And we should ask ourselves this question as I will be reading. And is do we actually trust God with our lives? Do we actually trust God with our lives? Do we actually believe the gospel, and all of God's promises that come alongside that? If the answer to the question is yes, then Romans 8, especially the section that we will be in today, should literally transform the way that we seek Christ and how we live in every single circumstance of our lives. And so with that, this leads me to my one and really only point, one point, which is kind of funny because Brian always gets on me when I tell him about this. But I just have one point for you today, and it's this. God's eternal goodness is displayed in our security in Christ throughout all circumstances. God's eternal goodness is displayed in our security in Christ throughout all circumstances. 
So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. So Romans 8, verses 31 and 39, it reads as this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So, so here in this text, Paul literally, really lays out seven really great questions. But he really gives us four really robust rhetorical questions that I actually want to focus on today that will actually help us see the power of God's love in the life of the follower of Jesus. And so before he actually gets into the nitty-gritty of what he wants the church in Rome to actually focus on, he asks this question of like, what are we to say to these things? What are we to actually say to these things? And this question, here he comes to this reflection on everything that he's been saying to the Romans so far from, from chapter 1 all into where we are in chapter 8, which actually leads us into some of the things that we actually talked about over, over the course of this series. Like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That life without the Spirit is death, but life with the Spirit is true life. The Spirit gives assurance to our relationship with God. You've been given a spirit of adoption. Suffering will soon give way to glory. The Spirit is interceding with us and for us in our pain at the throne of God. And then we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. This is the things that we've been seeing throughout this series. And then Paul is reflecting on these truths, and he's like, what shall we say about these things? What can we actually take away from what we've been hearing? And he lays it out really nicely with four really tough questions about life and the gospel that actually can kind of sometimes seem a little bit daunting for some of us when we think about them. But what he does is he gives us this, the potent magnitude of the glory of the gospel that is able to withstand anything, anything that comes against the gospel, it can withstand it. And so he starts out by answering this question, what are we to say to these things with, my first qu- with the first question? He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love this question. This is literally some fire straight down from heaven in the form of a question, okay? It's just, it's just like Paul is like, listen, nobody can be against you if God is for you. Nobody can be against you. As far as if Jesus Christ is with you, And if he is on your side, then nothing can actually come against you as a follower of Christ. Theologian J.I. Packer actually says this about this verse. 
He says, what is being proclaimed here is God's undertaking to uphold and protect us when men and things are threatening to provide for us as long as our earthly pilgrimage lasts and to lead us finally into the full enjoyment of himself. However, many obstacles may seem at present to stand in the way of our getting there. The simple statement, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances the Bible contains. This is so delightful. If God is for us, who can actually be against us? When I think about this verse, it reminds me of a little bit of growing up. So I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and I had some, let me tell you, one of the things of growing up in the inner city, you need to know how to fight. Okay, you just got to know how to fight. And let me tell you, I had some friends that knew how to fight, especially in like the middle school and high school years. I mean, I had friends where people, they, they would talk about them like, yeah, you don't want to fight him because he's probably going to knock you out. And there were times where we might go into parties and house parties and there might be people saying like, man, we want to fight this crew. Let me tell you something. I always felt secure. Now, I wouldn't have been the one that really wanted to fight. You know, if I had to, I would. But listen, I had friends like, man, I'm rolling with them. I don't have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to worry about. This is almost as if when you think about our lives and it's just like this. Imagine having two of the greatest knockout kings in all of boxing history on your side. Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali. Imagine just walking down the street and someone wants to pick a fight with you. You would feel real secure. You feel really, really secure. Because you're not the one who's, going, who's getting knocked out. Those opposing you are. Right? You would feel really, really secure. And so when I think about these verses, I have some comfort from the words of Paul here. You can be confident we can be confident and rest assured that, like, listen, the reality of your soul is in the hands of a powerful, sovereignly divine, loving God who is powerful above all things. In Christ, your destiny is secure, and nobody or anything can do anything to stop that or hinder that. Nothing can actually be against you. So as a Christian, this text is apparent, though, that you actually might have some opposition. There might be things against you. So maybe it's your own sin. Maybe it's the enemy. Maybe it's people in your life, your health, etc. Maybe things might just be rocky in your life and you might be a little bit discouraged. But listen, if the God of the universe is with you, and if he's for you, then who can actually be against you? Now this might seem a little bit lofty and far-fetched for some of us in here. We might be actually wondering, if, is God really for me though? I mean, my life is tough. I'm struggling as I'm sitting here today. And let me tell you, those thoughts are valid as I sometimes wrestle with that too, and I actually wrestle with it a lot. It's God actually for me. But there's an assurance, though, that God is actually for us. And Paul even says it with something so profound and so confirming in this next big question. It's the second one. And he says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. So you want to know how God is actually for you and for us. He showed it by not even sparing his own son, but by actually giving him up for us. He didn't spare his only son. Think about that. When he, when he talks about not sparing, meaning he did not refrain from or stop Jesus from actually suffering for the sins of humanity. He didn't stop it. And this is similar language, though, if you want to go back in the Old Testament for those people that love cross-references, because I love them. Genesis 22, verse 15, Abraham and Isaac, right? God told Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. 
And so he's just he's wrestling with it. He actually decides he wants to, he's going to go and do it. And as he's getting ready to do it, God tells him to stop. He said, you did not withhold your only son from me. And God actually told him not to kill his son. But then what we see as we reflect on that and we look at where we're at in Romans 8, God actually was the one who truly made the sacrifice. God didn't stop. He didn't refrain. He actually gave Christ up, and he gave it freely. John 3.16 tells you that. So think about that. A beautiful child that God literally loved and cared for dearly, he was willing to give up for even the worst of us. Talking about you want to know how God's for you? You go look at the cross. How can we not trust in this kind of God? How can we not trust him? God didn't have to send Christ to the cross for us. He didn't. But he did it with joy. Hebrews 12 tells you that he went to the cross with joy. I know any of us would hardly want to give up our only child for wicked people. But God himself did it because he was for us. He loved us that much. And this is confirmation of how God is actually for us. He went to extreme lengths to show us this love. Jesus bled, he died, and he suffered at the, at the hands of sinners, people he knew that he was actually going to go and die for. So why not want to put your trust in your life fully secure in the God who said, you know how I'm for you? Because I went and sent my son to die for you. God is calling out to you today by the blood of his son to tell you that he's with you. He has shown us an undeserving amount of grace that goes beyond understanding, and he did it freely. And so to that, Paul even says, listen, if God gave him up, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in other words, Paul is saying, what makes us think that God is going to give up on us now? That he's going to abandon us, that he's not faithful to his promises. God has always been faithful. You open up your Bible, you can see all the way throughout the Old Testament, God has always been faithful. He never stopped being faithful. He will graciously give us all things. And this graciously giving of all things is the undeserved relationship that we get to have with Christ and the Father that extends all the way throughout eternity. That's what we get. And this is what he gives. And the cross is the clearest picture that God's generosity in his word is trustworthy. It is. But you even want more confirmation? Paul doesn't stop there. He don't stop there. He doesn't, which is why I, lo I love the Bible, y'all. I love it. He doesn't stop there. Which leads me to my third big question. And it's in verses, I'm going I'm to combine these two in verses 33 and 34 because they're pretty similar. He says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here he goes into this courtroom in legal language to talk about someone, right, being charged for a crime that they committed. And he says, who can actually bring a charge and make us guilty as God's people, as God's elect? And guess what? The answer, just like the other ones before, is nobody. Nobody. No one can charge you. Because God is the one who justifies. He declares who is righteous. Think of it this way. You committed a crime that you know that you deserve to be punished for, or you're in court. You're sitting in there, and there's witnesses around. There's an attorney and a lawyer who are against you, and they say, send him to jail. Lock him up. 
I got evidence right here that you need to send him away. And the first thing the judge says is, nope, he's innocent. There ain't no more evidence to convict him. You can't be convicted of your crime. There ain't no charge that can be brought against you. So you walk away freely without having to pay the penalty for the crime. And it's because when we think about this reality, Jesus is the one who already took the penalty for the crime, meaning that there's no more evidence left to charge against you because it was already taken care of. The judge, God himself, has actually declared you as justified. He's done that. So if we are in Christ, then no one can charge us in God's court. Everything is God's. He owns the courtroom. He has the final verdict. No one else but him. Case closed. Case closed. So guess what? If no one can bring a charge against you as God's people, then no one can even condemn you, which is why he leads into that next question. Christ was the one who died. So he's taking us back to the beginning of the chapter in Romans 8, where he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can can condemn you if you're in Christ. And I mean no one, okay? Nobody, not you, nor Satan, or people against you. No one can condemn you or charge you as God's elect. So the lies in your head that tell you God isn't for you, that tells you that, oh, yeah, he doesn't forgive you for that one sin that you know was real messed up. The lies and stuff that you wrestle with that you keep pleading God to save you from, but you thought you keep wrestling with him. That lie that, oh, yeah, he doesn't love me no more. That he's not with you, that he's abandoned you, that you've lost your salvation, that he's going to punish you because you slipped up even though you're repenting, right? The lies are like, oh, man, I'm not even a Christian because I'm struggling. Those lies cannot even condemn you. They can't. They cannot. And the answer in that of like why is because the fact that Christ was the one who actually died for your sins. He was, con- he was the one who was actually condemned. He bore the full wrath of God. That's what it means. So that's why Paul answers like who can condemn you? Guess what? No one can. Because Christ was the one who actually died for you. So think about the weight of that. The weight of literally God's wrath that was to condemn sinners for eternity was literally placed upon Christ. It was. And so those who repent and believe in the gospel and follow Jesus will never be condemned, just like Paul talks about in verse 1 of this chapter, which is why, like I said, I love the Bible because it's all connected. So you cannot be condemned as a follower of Jesus. Jesus was this for you in all of your sin. The charges brought up against us were literally taken care of by Jesus. They were. And even more than that, though, as the scriptures tell us, more than him just dying, he also rose again, meaning that the sin and death were actually defeated by him. So for those who are in him, they actually can't be condemned. Why? Because he's actually over it. He rose over it. And this raising over it, raising from the grave, actually placed Christ at the right hand of God. And guess what the scriptures say? He is interceding for us. Like the witness on the stand who's given an account of the accused, Jesus is the one who sits next to God and says, yep, she and him, all those people, they're covered. My blood covers them. Let me encourage you with something. Let me encourage you with something. He's not condemning you. He's not. 
The scriptures just tell us he's interceding for us before God. He is. But I must say something, though. This covering and interceding, though, is only for those that Christ knows who are following him. He can't come to the stand for someone he doesn't know or someone who doesn't know him. So the question for us in here is, do we know Jesus? Are we in relationship with him? Have we repented, mind change, turned from my sin and believed in the gospel, turning towards Christ? Have we? If so, then guess what? Christ is interceding for you on your behalf, right next to the Father, holding on to you, going to sustain you until the end. 1 Corinthians 1a to tell you that. He's going to literally sustain you until the end, right before the Father on your behalf. And listen, if Jesus, the resurrected king, our advocate, is interceding for us, then nothing can actually separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Which leads to the fourth and last big question of the text. In verse 35, it says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And guess what? Guess what? It's the same answer. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's the same answer. Absolutely no one. None of these things can actually take us away from Christ. But one thing I do want to say is this, this text actually debunks the fact that Christians will never suffer. I have to say that. You're going to have to go through some things. Let me tell you. Okay? You're going to have to go through some stuff. But none of what you go, go through that's painful can actually take away you from Christ. You have a hope so much greater than your circumstances. So whether you are naked or poor or you're struggling or you're without basic needs or you're being persecuted for following Jesus or you're in physical danger or like some people in the faith across in other countries, they're actually being killed for their faith. Or you might be in distress in your heart and feel like God's far away. Guess what? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Christ loves you now and all throughout eternity. And that's something that we have to cling to. So even though you go through hardships, your hardships are not in vain. Because they reflect something so much deeper in the Father's love for you. Which is why Paul gives us verse 36. And actually in verse 36, he's referring back to, to uh, Psalm 44, verse 22. And this this picture of the suffering that the, that the Israelites were going through and that they were facing. And Paul brings it up to say, yep, the Christian, you're going to struggle. You might suffer. But guess what? It's for God's glory. Why? Because none of it can actually harm you. Because we are actually more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why the suffering can't harm you because you're more than conquerors through him who loved you. And this right here, I love it because it's almost like a praise report from Paul. I can imagine Paul writing this with a huge smile on his face. Might be dancing as he's writing it. He's just like, yeah, y'all are way more than conquerors even in your struggling. And the Greek word for conqueror means to actually prevail completely over. But if you actually look at the word itself, though, it can actually be translated. Just the word can be translated to super conqueror or hyper conqueror. Like, so this is a conqueror. Okay? More than a conqueror, you have a conqueror, you got more than a conqueror. Okay? And the depth of this can be heard in these words from John Piper, and I love this. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, 
but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. Meaning that they're going to do what I say. It says, a conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. So Piper helps us see the depth of what it means to be more than a conqueror. And guess what? Jesus overcoming the sting of death is literally why we are more than conquerors through him. If nothing can, can, can destroy Christ, for those of us in him, then we have that same promise. So if Jesus can use the affliction of the cross to produce the greatest glory, then we are more than conquerors. God can use the most horrific circumstances in the world for his own glory. Listen, man, I could talk about this all day long. This is why I love the Bible. Let me give you another reference. Back in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12, Paul actually talks about this just a little bit. He talks about, hey, we are afflicted. We might be crushed, driven to despair, but not literally perplexed. And then he says, because in our death, we carry the death of Jesus, but in our life, we also carry the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul pretty much is saying there, it's like, yep, for the believer, things might actually get rough. But despite that, we have the life of Jesus' resurrection and glory over the, over the suffering and death in our lives. And so here in Romans 8, he's saying the same thing. He's like, yeah, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Nothing can prevail over you because of Jesus. Because Jesus overcame sin and death at the cross, nothing can. And Paul answered up even to close up the chapter in verses 38 to 39. And in my version, it says, for, he says, I am sure. Some, verses, some versions might say, he says, I'm persuaded. He's like, listen, y'all, I'm super, I'm really confident of this, that neither death nor life. Let me repeat that again. Death nor life. You can say it a thousand times. Neither death nor life. And I think this one, that, that part of it, and I'm going to go on some more. I think that part of it is really personal for Paul. Because Paul is the same person in Philippians 1.21 who says what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. He's the same one in Acts 20, 24, who says, I count my life as no value, as he's getting ready to see that he's about to go and be imprisoned. And so I imagine when I think about when he's talking about neither death nor life, I think about the state of our world, and even America, and even for us as Christians. And it's something that really strikes me a little bit, I get afraid of sometimes. And it's sometimes we are really obsessed with staying alive. We fear death so much that we'll go to extremes to protect our lives so much that we actually do a disjustice to the calling of God to literally trust in his promises throughout the scriptures. Instead, we trust in our own promises sometimes, don't we? And listen, I'm in this boat too. Like, man, I'll do whatever I can to stay, stay alive as long as I can, even if that means I never leave my house or I never want to go make tough decisions. I never want to go tell and speak truth about Jesus because I'm afraid what people might think. But guess what? No matter what the outcome is, even if you do step out, the scriptures have been telling us right in this chapter that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, not even death. So why do we fear? What are we afraid of? Because not even death itself or even being alive can separate us. And he continues, neither can angels nor rulers. So that's the spiritual realm. For those of us that might get afraid of, like, you know, the spiritual warfare that goes on, even that can't separate you, okay? Neither things present nor things to come. I love that one. So whether, so whether or not you might get COVID, 
or whoever wins this election. Messed up relationships or more horrific historical events that come up in the future. None of those things can separate us. None of them. So what are we afraid of? And guess what? He continues, neither power nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all creation can can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. We are sealed in Christ no matter what. And this text is a calling for us to walk in the confidence of those promises. We have to walk in the confidence of these promises. This is a profound text, family. It is. Because nothing can actually separate us from God's love. He's never going to let you go. And it's a lie to think that he is, or he will. It's a lie from the enemy. That is a lie from Satan himself. He's not letting you go if you are united with Christ. If you are united with Christ, you are united with God and Christ literally forever, even in the toughest situations and seasons of your life, which might actually be going on right now. I hope that this text really brings you a great amount of joy. I really do even if you might be in here struggling with so much, and I can only imagine what some of you are going through. But on the contrary, though, I also hope that this text leaves us with a deep wonder and evaluation with our hearts. Think of these truths of God and and ask ourselves, do we truly believe this passage? Do we truly believe the gospel and what Christ did for us? Ask yourself this, where's my security when my life gets hard? Dang, am I putting my security in my next promotion, my future career, my kids' accomplishments, who wins the election, my bank account, my health, my grades, my relationships? Where am I putting my my security? Or am I putting my security in Jesus and his finished work in the hope that we have to be with him for all of eternity? I must say that the deep generosity and the love of God has provided us with a security in Christ in every single circumstance of our lives, all the days of our lives. All the days of our lives. So with that being said, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate, we should praise God for his grace and mercy and goodness that he's bestowed upon us sinners. That's what we should do. We should praise God and be thankful. And as I get ready to close, one of the ways that we can do this is by communion. It's by communion. And communion is this this really awesome symbol. It's this great symbol of remembering what Jesus has done for us and these promises. As you take the bread, his body being broken, and you take the juice, his blood being shed, so that we can have a relationship with him that goes into eternity. We can be saved. There ain't no condemnation. We can go praise him for that. And so if you are a Christian, as I get ready, as I invite the band up, I'm getting ready to pray here in a second. Invite the band up. If you are a Christian, please partake in this as we remember and praise God in this next set of worship for the truths that we see in Romans 8 and all of Scripture. I love you all. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, man, we just thank you so much for this word. We just thank you so much for your deep love that you have for even the worst of us. 
Thank you that we have this promise in the scriptures that nothing can separate us, no one can condemn us, no one can, can charge us, that we're not separated from you. Thank you that, that that promise is so true, that you're holding on to us tightly. Thank you, Jesus, that you're interceding for us. God, I'll just pray for anyone here that's wrestling with that truth, that they would just submit to you, that you would just help them in their unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I submit all of us to you this morning. And just say, thank you so much that we have this truth from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.